Good morning, you shiny shinbone. Displayed aloft over the Nevin man's mantelpiece, waiting, all white and bony, hanging with no purpose, until one day you are torn from the mantelpiece and you are being used to bludgeon someone during a drunken argument about snooker. Welcome to the Blind Buy Podcast. What's the fucking crack? Thank you for the lovely... uh, Fucking the lovely feedback regarding last week's podcast where I read out a short story called Mara from my brand new book, Boulevard Rain, which I'm still plugging because... It's Christmas, you cunts. Christmas is coming up. So, you can buy the book. And my ma told me that she saw it in the catalogue for Lidl. So they're going to be selling it in Lidl. Possibly on special offer. Don't quote me on that. I don't want to get in hassle over that. My ma said, your book is going to be on special offer in Lidl. I saw it in the catalogue. But I have no other confirmation for this particular piece of information other than my 80 year old mother telling me she saw it so if I tell ye my books on fucking sale in Lidl based on my ma's information and it's not true then that'll start a lot of shit okay so I don't know I've no reason to think that she'd lie to me but there you go you don't if your ma says your book is in Lidl don't go standing on your podcast basically that's one thing I've learned over the years So, this week, the thing I wanted to talk about this week corresponds corresponds perfectly with my BBC series called Blind Boy Undestroys. I didn't pick that name. Uh, My BBC series, fingers crossed, is 99.9% coming out this week on the BBC iPlayer, which if you live in the UK or the occupied north of Ireland then you'll be able to see it on the iPlayer if you live in the Republic of Ireland or beyond (coughs) you'll have to find more devious ways to watch my BBC series using um, what you call those fucking things a VPN alright using a VPN my personal experience with VPNs is is get one that you that you subscribe to and spend four quid a month on because the free VPNs I've used free VPNs before and you're using it and your fucking laptop gets all hot and it's because some prick in China is using your laptop to mine some Bitcoin. So I I recommend pay for your own VPN. That's just a bit of a bit of sage advice from the internet. So yeah. my BBC series is coming out. It's called Blind by Undestroys. Be out this week. And it's it covers four broad fucking broad kind of kind of uh, themes and hot takes. One of them is anxiety. Not anxiety as in panic attacks, but the general anxiety of the internet in today's life. Another one is work, where I look at how the definition of work is be, is changing today and how our rights are slowly being stripped away when it comes to work. The other one is, is slavery. 
um, looking at as looking at slavery, basically historical slavery, and also the slavery that happens in pl- plain sight for you and I to consume goods. And then the other episode, we preliminarily we called it chaos, and that one's harder to pin down. It's just about, it's about the, you know, you, you have to call them these fucking names because w- w- when you go to a TV station and actually say to them, this is what it's about, they kind of go, that's too arty-farty. Let's think of something simpler. So really, if I had to say to ye, what is chaos about? The kind of central thesis, I think, it's about postmodernism has ended the postmodern era has ended, and we're in a new era. Some people call it metamodern, uh, which is defined by how we live our we we live in a fucking era, lads, where for the first time in history, we genuinely spend a huge proportion of our life in in a virtual fucking space. Okay, we have compartmentalized elements of our personality, parts of ourselves, to exist in a virtual space. And that has never existed before. And I'm talking about social media. I'm talking about, you know, you're, you're, you, have, you have your personality for Instagram. You have your personality for Facebook. You have your personality for Twitter. And we've compartmentalized psychologically ourselves to exist in these spaces. So it's about the chaos of that and kind of post-postmodern. But... You know, I'm just saying this on this podcast. I think I think the BBC were like, "Fuck off, back to college, you nerd." We're trying to entertain cons here. So, I want to speak about one of the central theses and hot takes on one of the episodes. And the reason I want to do it is because something has been happening to me the past couple of weeks, which is highly relevant to the episode. And I've only really noticed it today. When I was writing out the what the episode is about. So here's the crack. As you know, about two weeks ago, I was over in America doing some work, right? I was in San Francisco and Los Angeles. So I had to take two very large flights, 10 hours apiece. So that's a lot of time in a fucking airplane. So what I've noticed since I've come back, and it's it's... Strange little thing. I'm generating quite a lot of static electricity. Okay. You know every so often. You're just minding your own business. And then you touch something. Okay. You touch a fucking. Usually something metal. And then all of a sudden you get this tiny little shock on the end of your finger. And you're like what the fuck was that? Or you touch off another person. And you go what the fuck was that? You get this tiny little shock. The same shock you'd get off a 9 volt battery or the shock you'd get off when we were kids and we were exceptionally bored before any fucking social media. If we were really bored, what we used to do is, do you know those lighters, right, that you press down and they make the click? Well, we used to take the top off the lighter so that the flint was gone. And you'd press the button down and it would click and you'd see a little electric spark. And what you could do is you could go to your friend and click this lighter against their hand or their face. And it would give a tiny, tiny little shock. 
which would be entertaining when there was no such thing as social media. So that type of shock. So whatever happened on this fucking plane, this long plane journey I've been doing, it's after building up a bunch of electricity or something in my body and I've been getting about six shocks a day and they're not necessarily unpleasant it's grand it's just a little shock but they're surprising and it's happening enough for me to notice it right now for some reason it's not happening in my house at all okay it's not happening in my gaff but when I go to the shop right and this has been every day the first few days I'd start to notice if I were to reach up let's just say I want to buy a tin of butter beans I want to make like one of one of my favourite uh, vegan dishes that I'd eat during the week because as you know I'm mostly plant based during the week and then I eat meat at the weekends so I make a uh, quite a delicious butter bean and spinach curry which is very tasty and yummy it's basically how do I describe it chop up a lot of scallions fuck them into a pan chop up a lot of mushrooms fuck them into a pan saute them gently fuck in a bit of cumin powder bit of curry powder right then in in goes your spinach saute that so the spinach shrinks fucking spinach is a prick lads isn't it you buy a big bag of spinach big huge bag of spinach and then you cook it down and it's the size of a euro so you fuck your spinach in that sauteing in the pan with curry powder cumin green onions and a few mushrooms You've got that all shrank down. The important thing you want to... When you're cooking fucking powders, like curry powders, you put the heat down real low because you, you need to toast the spices to get them fragrant before you put anything wet in. So once that's all toasted, fuck in your tin of tomatoes, fuck in half a tin of coconut milk, and then fuck in your butter beans, lash it around in the pan put on the uh, a cover on the pan leave it there on a very low heat for as long as you like and you've got a beautiful butter bean and spinach curry with mushrooms and fucking all the crack in it and you eat that with a bit of rice and you, you won't you'll be like I don't give a fuck if I have meat this is delicious so that'd be uh, and I'll get two days out of it so I'll have that every week on like a Monday and Tuesday so what I noticed is that when I was the reason I went specific on that recipe as well is I put out a tweet uh, about two weeks ago where I said I'd love to do a podcast where I speak about really basic cooking that's affordable, really cheap cooking because I used to live on like 50 quid a week and when you're living on 50 quid a week you better know how to cook because if you know how to cook you can easily live on 50 quid a week and have a ton of delicious meals but if you don't and you're going to the takeaway, that 50 quid will disappear very quickly. So I suggested doing a fucking, some cooking podcasts, where I just teach you how to make affordable, delicious meals, directed mainly at young lads. I learned to cook when I was about 
21 or 22. Maybe 20. Because um, there's young lads out there who don't have any money and they're eating in takeaways and I'm sure they'd love to be able to cook but they can't, they don't have the skills. So that, I, I've, I've diverted from the topic, lads. So anyway, the dish is important to this story. So on a Monday, I'd be going into Dunn's and going, right, I need a tin of fucking butter beans and I need a tin of coconut milk. I buy the small tin and I need a tin of tomatoes. So that's three tins. So I'd go up to the aisle to buy them and it's in Dunn's and I reach up for the fucking butter beans and then I get an electric shock. And when it happened, I let out a yelp. Like... It was packed. It was busy in fucking Duns. Now, ye know as well, I have a history of panic attacks being related specifically to shopping centres and, and places like Duns and Aldi. Okay, anyone who's listened to this podcast and knows about my stories of anxiety, these are places that I, I was not able to go. I would get a panic attack. Now, that doesn't happen. I love being there. I get strength from chilling out in a place that once used to be terrifying. So, I walk into... A supermarket with a great sense of confidence and triumph every time I do it. And I get great meaning from choosing my ingredients and building the narrative of the meal I'm going to make. I get a lot of meaning from that. So I'm there anyway, in fucking Duns, and I reach for the chickpeas. And I get an electric shock, and then I yelp, kind of like, um... <coughs> like that. A, a, a ratish yelp. And when a, when a grown adult man does that in Duns, when he tries to touch a, a tin of chickpeas, quite appropriately, it draws attention to people from people around me. So now I'm in the fucking canned goods aisle, having just gotten an electric shock from a tin of chickpeas, and I've yelped, and I've now become the centre of attention. Now that for me is, that's challenging, it's quite triggering. Because as you know, when I spoke about my, my, my anxiety around supermarkets when I was like 19 and getting serious panic attacks and staying in my bedroom and not going out, the fear for me was, what if I go to a supermarket? What if I go to a shopping centre and I do something that makes me the centre of attention? What if I puke up on the ground? What if I go crazy and everyone stares and looks at me and I become a spectacle? Wouldn't that be terrible? And the fear of that would give me anxiety attacks 10 years ago. So now I'm fucking getting shocks off the chickpea. I'm drawing attention to myself. So it's it's not in like panic attack territory and I don't think I'm going to go back there. But it's certainly uncomfortable and it made me immediately leave the canned goods aisle. Then I went over to the fridges, the fridge section to get my uh, I like to have a smoothie in the morning so I'll buy frozen berries you know and then I put my hand towards the fridge with the fucking frozen berries same thing happens I'm getting an electric shock from the frozen berries what bastard is texting me Aer Lingus is that is that is that is that some Freudian shit now or is, is that the uh, Jungian synchronicity that I should be talking about getting static electricity shit from uh, airplanes and then I get an email from Aer Lingus or do I just do a lot of flights for my job we'll never know holy fuck 
why are Aer Lingus? So I just got a mail from Aer Lingus there about my flight to Los Angeles on the 4th of November, which was a month ago. For some reason, they're, deci- they're deciding to email me now, a month later, and it's December. And I'm now getting an email about my confirmation and booking reference now about a flight that happened a month ago. Not for the good customer service, Aer Lingus. While I tell ye about the static fucking electricity that is existent in my body because of this very flight. So, maybe it is Jungian synchronicity. So I'm getting electric shocks all over the gaff, lads, in the supermarket. And I'm, I'm aware of it, but I'm not really. It's just unpleasant. And then I kept getting electric shocks from this static in my body from being in the airplane. And slowly, what started to happen, and it's like, I'm not really aware of it, because if I was fully aware of it, I'd have stopped it in the moment. I naturally started to avoid visiting the section with canned goods and visiting the fridge, because my unconscious knew if I reach for a tin of beans, I'm going to get an electric shock. If I reach for the fridge, I'm going to get an electric shock because of the uh, static in my body. So on the second week, when I went to make my fucking spinach and butter bean curry, I naturally, instead of buying a tin of tomatoes, I went and bought fresh tomatoes. I didn't get any fucking coconut milk at all. I didn't get any frozen berries. I was naturally avoiding the aisles in the shopping centre that were giving me electric shocks without being fully conscious of it. It just, it had internalised as a, a fear. And it was partly the fear of electric shocks, but mostly I'd say what it was, it was the fear of getting an electric shock and then becoming a centre of attention in the middle of the supermarket, which I don't like. So my actual purchasing habits changed and I was going home eating sub subpar fucking curries that was just spinach which is grand because you buy the spinach in a bag in the veg section that's not going to electrocute me uh, tomatoes aren't going to electrocute me the only thing that's electrocuting me in the meal butter beans the tin uh, tin of tomatoes and coconut milk so I was having disappointing curries that weren't the whole joy of that curry to be honest it's the coconut milk mixed with the tin tomato it's creamy and citrusy and tomatoey at the same time so I was having subpar curries then after about two weeks the electricity just leaves your body and I'm not really getting electrocuted by things anymore but it did leave me with this apprehensive fear about reaching for things that electrocute me because of this static in my body And then I started to think, holy fuck, this is what's happening to me goes back exactly to the work of a psychologist called B.F. Skinner. And one of my episodes in the the BBC series is based on the work of B.F. Skinner. And I'll tell you the crack now. This sounds like, I know this sounds like I've perfectly concocted a fucking story about getting electrocuted in Dunn's to suit the narrative of the podcast, but I assure you that is not the case. Honest to fuck, I'd tell you if it was. So, who was B.F. Skinner and 
Why is he important to this podcast? So what my experience there in, in the in Duns and getting electric shocks from tins of beans and then slowly as a result of those electric shocks no longer purchasing tins of beans or anything metal for two weeks. That's kind of on the lines of what B.F. Skinner discovered. Now what, what makes it... So B.F. Skinner was a behavioural psychologist and he was interested in in behaviour in general, not just human behaviour, but, but animal behaviour too. So Skinner's major breakthrough is he invented this thing called a Skinner box, okay? So, taking it back to my experience in Duns, right? So, every time I touched a metallic object like a tin of beans, I received an electric shock. And this, without me knowing, changed my behaviour. I stopped purchasing or touching things in Duns that were metal. I don't know why I only received the electric shocks in shopping centres. I haven't a clue why that is, because it wasn't happening at home, but it was happening in Duns or in Aldi. And I changed my consumer behaviour. So what Skinner did in the 50s, because he was a behavioural psychologist, he was interested in the behaviour of animals and the behaviour of humans. Skinner came up with this thing called a Skinner box. So it's basically a, a cage, an animal, a, a cage for a rat. So it's a cage with a rat in it. And on one side of the cage there's a lever, a little simple, like a little pedal. And on the floor of the cage, there's an electric grid that can deliver shocks. So rats are very curious animals. When you put a rat in a cage, it will investigate all corners of the cage. So Skinner puts the rat into the cage. It's investigating all around, smelling everything. And then eventually it finds the little pedal, puts its paw on the pedal by accident, out of curiosity. And then all of a sudden, a pellet of food appears. So the rat eats the pellet is like yum yum and slowly but surely realises that every time the rat every time the rat puts its paw on the lever a pellet appears so the rat now starts to consistently and continually start pressing this pedal because every time it does it food appears and this is what Skinner called a reinforcing behaviour so what happens when, when the rat receives food the rat's brain releases a chemical called dopamine. Dopamine is it's 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 what it's a pleasurable chemical. Rats have it, humans have it. When you eat nice food, the feeling in your brain that translates to emotions that makes you go, that was lovely, that's dopamine being released, rewarding you for eating the nice you nice tasty food. When you have sex, same thing, dopamine, loads of dopamine is released to tell you sex is good have more of it when another person when you make a successful social interaction and someone gives you praise or smiles at you or recognizes you dopamine is released so skinner figured that this rat getting the fucking food every time it touched a pedal and then continuing the behavior that through the release of dopamine in the rat's brain it reinforced the behaviour. So the rat was becoming operant conditioned. An operator, Skinner, was conditioning and changing the behaviour of the rat, whether the rat knew it or not. 
then he introduced something else into the cage. Above the pet, <clears throat> above the pedal, there was a red light. And what would happen is that the rat would press the pedal and receive food, but every so often, the rat would press the pedal. A red light would appear, and when the red light appeared, the electric grid on the on the ground would give the rat a little shock, which the rat then experienced as painful and anxious and frightening and the exact opposite of a dopamine hit. This is what I was experiencing when I was touching the fucking tins of beans and getting my electric shock and making a show of myself in Duns. I It was a punishment. It wasn't reinforcing. I was being punished by tins of beans. So the rat in the cage presses the pedal and then soon realises that he can stop the electric shock if he presses the pedal again. So, presses it, food is released. Presses it, food is released. Presses it, red light appears. The rat goes, oh fuck, there's going to be a shock. Then starts pressing it loads of times to stop the shock from happening. So Skinner had basically managed to completely change how a rat... He managed to manipulate how a rat behaves based purely on reward and punishment, okay? And what I explore in my BBC episode about anxiety is exactly this, but on a much larger, kind of freakier scale in terms of what's happening right now in the world. But before I get onto that, we have to get the little ocarina pause out of the way. Um, because, you know, I don't like being interrupted when I'm on a roll with something. So, it's not the ocarina pause, it's the Brazilian nose whistle pause. This Brazilian nose whistle was given to me by Brian Cross in Los Angeles. So here we go. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy. For the past 20 years, when I experience anxiety or depression, or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions, I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give better help a try. 
It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you gotta do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindbuy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash blindbuy. That was the Brazilian nose pause. You probably received an advert that either told you good or bad things about yourself in order to oper- operant condition you into buying their bullshit product. Other things to get out of the way. Gigs. I'm going to do it so quickly. Dublin. Sugar Club. January. 3rd, 4th, 5th. Tickets are left for that. Look it up on Google. Australia and New Zealand. Tickets left for those gigs. Look it up on the internet. Troubadourmusic.com Scotland and England tour Not a lot of tickets left for London Not a lot of tickets left for Glasgow We'd be down to the single digits on them But yes there are tickets available for Birmingham And for Liverpool There we go, we got that out of the way What else? Fucking Patreon This podcast is supported by you the listener Okay Every so often I might get a uh, a little sponsor per episode but in general I don't want advertisers on this podcast because what that would do would mean I'd have to change I'd have to suit what some fucking brand wants the podcast to be rather than me being able to do what I feel and what gives me that freedom is that this podcast is supported by you uh, the listener of the podcast via the Patreon page patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast do you enjoy the podcast do you like it are you getting something from it each week? Well, I do this podcast essentially for free. So if you're consuming it loads and you're feeling generous, go to the Patreon, give me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month if you can afford it. If you can't, you can listen for free. Why am I always plugging the Patreon? Because people come and people go. So I have to continually start uh, keep reminding you I always need new patrons because the same amount of patrons that join are the same amount that leave. So I have to keep pushing it. And this is what I how I earn a living. This is what keeps me um, taking over. It's what gives me solace, happiness and comfort in my life. So please, please join the Patreon. It makes a huge difference. Okay, back to Skinner. So Skinner's experiment with the rat in the cage. Um, You know, him being able to prove that he can modify and change the behaviour of an animal based on the rewards and punishment that that animal receives was groundbreaking and he soon said well fucking humans must be the same and a lot of a lot of positive things came out of Skinner's research you know in terms of therapy um, we'll say gra- gradual when it comes to people with phobias gradual exposure if you've got someone we'll say let's take it back to me when I was experiencing intense uh, anxiety and agoraphobia about going to places like supermarkets or going to places like pubs, what I would do, aside from all my cognitive behavioural therapy, aside from building my self-esteem, all of this, there's a thing when you're trying to improve 
your mental health. It's all well and good learning about, you know, why you have anxiety or learning about cognitive behavioural therapy or like listening to this podcast and listening to me talk about cognitive behavioural therapy. It's, it's grand learning about it. But to truly, for it to have an effect and to change who you are and for you to stop being a person who suffers from anxiety, you have to move it from your head to your heart. And the main way to do that really is... It's, it's through actively changing your actual behaviour, okay? So CBT, that I speak about a lot, you know, that happens at home on a page. I had a, I had a today I had a panic attack. Uh, what, how was I feeling during the panic attack? What were my views about the situation during the panic attack? And then I'd write, what are some alternative views I can take, more rational approaches? But when it came to me in agoraphobia, and not being able to go to supermarkets, we'll say, when I was 19 or 20. How I actually conquered it was I had to physically, gradually expose myself to these situations that were very anxiety-inducing. So it meant... It wasn't crowds were my thing. So I think, for me, what I started doing was going out to pubs with friends, which would would have been a really difficult situation for me that would have immediately triggered a panic attack so what I'd do is I'd safely go I'd use my CBT and say look it's highly unlikely that I'm gonna get a panic attack in this place and if it does I'll cope so I'd go there and I might do 20 minutes in the pub and it would be intensely stressful it wouldn't be enjoyable I'd be fighting off a panic attack at all times and I'd say 20 minutes is up and I'd go home and I'd feel a little bit better I'd be able to say to myself I went to the pub tonight and it was frightening and you know the feelings of agoraphobia and anxiety came up but ultimately I went to the pub and aside from that the only kind of negative shit that happened was in my own head so then the next week I'd go back to the pub and I might do an hour there and then after that time I come away and I'm feeling a lot better than the first time And then the third week, I'm doing two hours and I'm changing my behaviour each time, going back to the source of anxiety. And after two months, I'm comfortably able to exist in a pub or exist in a supermarket and my anxiety is effectively under control. That technique there of gradual exposure comes from the the work of Skinner. Because what I'm doing there is testing negative beliefs that I have about an anxiety trigger, testing them against reality, changing my behaviour and doing it, and as a result, my brain and my behaviour changes to accommodate the the kind of dopamine hit you get from conquering fear. Conquering fear gives a fucking dopamine hit. So that's an example of one positive thing that would have come from Skinner's work. A lot of negative things came as well. Advertisers immediately jumped on Skinner's work and realised that because what advertisers want to do is get you to buy shit so they started to figure out if they could advertise things based on reward and punishment then we would buy things based on that so the entire kind of 1950s onwards of advertising is heavily heavily uh, influenced by the behavioural psychology of Skinner 
So where we are today, and this is where my BBC episode about anxiety focuses on, is I want to speak about operant conditioning and Skinner's work in terms of the past 10 years of social media because it's heavily present and we're not truly aware of it. So the central thesis of the BBC episode is that we now walk around in our own Skinner box, okay? And the Skinner box essentially is our smartphone, okay? The Skinner box is no longer something... Like when I'm in, in the supermarket getting shocked by tins of beans, maybe, the, the, you know, the Duns in that moment becomes the Skinner box. But once I leave Duns, I'm not influenced by it. But our smartphones are now the Skinner box. Something... Something changed around, I'd say around 2010. Like, I remember back, I remember social media, using Bebo, using MySpace and early Facebook before 2010. And it was it was a different world. Like, I remember on Bebo around 2007, like, people used to joke. You know, we'd be out having pints. This is the mad thing. Bebo was only something... And same with MySpace. It, it was something you had to go to your fucking laptop for at home. And on MySpace, if, if you were online, you had a little green dot beside your profile that would let everyone know when you were online. And if your green dot was on too much, it was quite shameful. You were seen as someone who didn't have a life. If you were consistently online in MySpace and everyone could see it, people would go fucking hell that's troubling that person must be at home on their laptop all day online and not leaving the gaff so it was a source of shame so because of that shame people would try and modify you know how much they're on myspace they'd never leave it signed in for fucking ages instead you'd sign in check if you got any messages check if you got any comments leave immediately and then go back in another hour because Shame had emerged around being consistently online because what it meant is that you're not cool, you're a greasy nerd at home in a dark room with your laptop in front of you and you have no life. That's how it was in 2006, 2007. So that shame, that pure shame, operated and worked as a punishment. You're not getting a dopamine hit from that. So people aren't staying online in 2008. You're checking in and checking out quickly and hoping people don't see that green light turn up on your profile every day to say, this person is online. And we used to joke, not just we, all over fucking uh, MySpace, all over Bebo, all over Facebook in the early days. People would joke, ah, fuck it, did you hear they're bringing out uh, Bebo for your mobile phone? And... We used to be there drinking our pints at night time and we go, fucking hell, wouldn't that be awful? Can you imagine it? Wouldn't that be hell? Imagine being able to take your phone out and you can check if you got a Bebo comment. Instead, what you had to do is like, if you were out in the fucking nightclub and you met someone and, I know, if you met a girl or whatever and you'd say, oh, here's my Bebo page... You had to wait till you got home to see if she fucking commented on your page or left you a message or something. And you had to... You had to postpone 
the dopamine hit of knowing if someone interacted with your social media and we joke about the utter hellscape landscape that would appear if we had Bebo on our phones. It was absurd to us in 2008. And then smartphones happen. I got my first smartphone around 2011 and a smartphone for me because we always had internet enabled phones like I had fucking a phone with internet on it in 2006 but you'd never use it because it would add into your credit. It was for emergencies. You just wouldn't. But in 2011, when I got my first, I think it was like an iPhone 4, there was no apps on it. And I had the Facebook app and the Twitter app. And I was now able to have Twitter 24 fucking hours a day on my phone. And there was it wasn't like MySpace where... A green dot appears that says you're continually online. Now the shame had been removed. If you're on Twitter all day in 2011, there's not really any shame in continually posting because no one can say, uh, you, you stupid greasy nerd, you've no friends and you're at home fucking wanking in front of a laptop. Can't say that anymore in 2011 because you're like, no, I'm out here having fun times in a nightclub. And I just checked my mobile phone, you dark. So the whole landscape changed. And being continually online was no longer a source of shame. And this was a very, very deliberate move by social media companies. So here's the kind of... Why? How does that... Why does that happen? So here's the crack. The most important commodity of the last decade, right... By far, more important than oil. Like, who are the richest companies in the fucking world? The richest companies are Google, Facebook, right? And you think to yourself, how the fuck? What's, like, Facebook is free. Google is free. Twitter is free. How are these companies, like, earning billions and billions and billions? How are these companies the richest companies in the world? I'm not paying them. My friends aren't paying them. We're using it all for free. The commodity that's more valuable than fucking oil is data. Now, I've spoken about data before, but data is one of these insinuous words that's so depersonalized we don't actually place any value on it. But data is the most valuable thing in the world today. Data basically is... It's, a, it's, it's an incredibly detailed kind of track of your online behavior so everything you do online is tracked and kept in a little folder and that's your data it's it's what you look at it's how much you're online now with the fucking you know it's where you move around your city because of google maps it's every single aspect of your behavior if your smartphone is on you, is recorded as data. And Facebook have this data because to use Facebook, you don't give them money. Instead, what you do is you give them permission to record everything you do. And this is then highly valuable to advertisers because if an advertiser knows literally everything about your behavior, then they have a much higher chance of 
recommending something to you that you will probably buy like instead of like with billboards with a billboard in the fucking 1990s you have to put an ad up and hope that most people like it now with data that's different people can target exactly what you want to buy because they've purchased an incredibly detailed intimate record of every single aspect of your behaviour they've purchased this from Facebook and Google for a lot of money and now this company can sell you shit perfectly so that's data and it's the biggest commodity in the world so when the kind of data economy emerges obviously what, what, what do what do Google now want what do Facebook want what do Twitter want what they want is as much of your data right they want as much of a record of your behaviour as humanly possible how do you do that the best way to do it is to keep you on Twitter, on Facebook, on Google for as much of your day as humanly possible. Every second you're scrolling, every second you pause your screen, every picture you like, every comment you write is recorded as data and it is highly, highly valuable to these companies. So these companies start to go well how can we get people to spend as much time as possible using our apps so we can then take their delicious data okay uh, some people refer to it as the attention economy it's the economy that it, that exists for your attention they want to keep you on youtube as long as possible you know why would google buy youtube because people were spending loads of time on youtube not spending any money um, watching fucking videos that are Ill- mostly illegally uploaded but they don't care because Google are going people are spending huge chunks of their day on YouTube that's a load of data and behaviour that we we don't have because they're visiting another website so Google buys YouTube and now Google gets all your data when you're using YouTube do you get me? so they're purchasing your attention and this is how things have been panning out since 2011. But it has now shaped the fucking world we live in. And this is highly influenced by Skinner. Massively influenced. Um, the, the, where the rat and the cage is our fucking smartphone. It's as simple as that. And... I'd like to call that a hot take, but it's not really. It's it's fact. The scientists working in Facebook and Google were looking at behavioural science and they want us to keep us on these phones as long as humanly possible. So the other thing is, is when the rat was in Skinner's cage, Skinner is close by monitoring and recording every aspect of that rat's behaviour. You know, the rat is being watched at all times. What happens when we give the rat food? What happens when we shock the rat? What happens when we introduce a green light? What happens when we introduce a red light? Skinner in the 1950s was consistently recording the behavioural data of that rat and then responding to that data with different rewards and punishments to see could, it, could he change the rat's behaviour, operant conditioning. 
and operator conditions the behaviour of the rat and changes and controls it outside of the rat's knowledge because it's appealing to the most simple stimulus of a dopamine hit. It's the same shit with our fucking smartphones. When we behave like the rat on Google and Facebook, we're sending our data to Google and Facebook and they have entire teams of people to analyse this data and to test us in real time to change their fucking new policy, to change how the timeline is, to adjust how we're fed information in real time in a fucking Skinner box. We live in a Skinner box so long as you have a mobile phone. And often they do it in plain sight. Do you know? Uh, Instagram just did did a trial thing there in Ireland where they've removed visible likes. Um, they're trying to say they're doing it for the for the benefit of 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 the user. They're not. It's it's a fucking it's. They're doing a Skinner experiment to only the people of Ireland to see h- how will the people of Ireland behave if we remove likes. Will they use the app less or will they use the app more? And depending on the results of that study, based on the data we give them, they'll make a choice about what they should do worldwide. So that's it out in the open right there. A Skinnerian experiment. In 2016, Facebook did an experiment on, I think it was like 55 million people. They didn't tell us they were doing this, but they straight up did an experiment where whatever way Facebook changed the, the algorithm, right? The algorithm is how they do it. The algorithm is, is, is how the information appears on your timeline depending on your behavior. Are depending on what they want you to see. But in 2016, for about 50 million people, they managed to prompt... So I think what they did is Facebook changed your feed so that less, like, articles and news stuff appeared on your feed. And what, what appeared on your feed more was content from your actual friends. Okay, so 2016 that happened. Facebook did it deliberately. Let's stop allowing you see articles from the Irish Times. Let's stop letting you see posts from the fucking Rubber Bandits page. Because I noticed it. I was like, fuck, no one's seeing my posts anymore. What's going on? So what they did is they changed the timeline so that you're using it. And all of a sudden now there's no more Irish Times. There's no more Joe.ie. And it's all your friends' pictures that are on your timeline now you don't really notice it's happening and what they were doing was if, if Facebook give you more of your friends and that's what you see in your timeline you're now more likely to like your friends pictures and when you press that like button on your friends friends picture that friend is the little rat in the box who presses the pedal who then gets the lump of food and what it was was that like I said earlier, we receive a dopamine hit when we have a successful social interaction. Receiving a like on a photograph or a status, our primitive brains don't know that that's happening on a screen and our brains receive it as somebody likes me. We get a dopamine hit, we feel good, it adjusts our behaviour. Why did Facebook do that? Why would Facebook allow a fuckload of uh, only your friends to appear on the timeline as opposed to like advertisers and big business? Because, and it worked, if more friends appear on your timeline, therefore you're more likely to like your friend's uh, c- 
comments and pictures, your friends then get the little dopamine hit, feel good and start posting more. So what it did is it caused all of us to spend a lot more time on Facebook because we were receiving more positive reinforcement from our peers. And then what it did for, we'll say, businesses like, you know, newspapers. In order for the newspapers, or, or my page for instance, to be seen more on the timeline, we had to pay Facebook money in order for our posts to appear more. So that right there is a, is a Skinner-based exp- ex- um, experiment that Facebook carried out based on the data they were receiving from us to change and modify our behaviour. Facebook operant conditioned us to stay on Facebook more because and to post more because we're more likely to get more uh, likes, which we receive as a dopamine hit. So that's operant conditioning right there. Now you might be wondering, like, so fucking what? You know, so what? And to an extent, I go, so what? You know, um, if going onto Facebook and talking about my life or posting nice photographs of a dog or whatever, if I'm doing that more, who fucking cares? What? Where's the damage? Where's the harm? And for a lot of that stuff, it isn't really that harmful. It's We've been exposed to operant conditioning from advertising for years. Um, it's not the worst. But where does it get dark? I'll tell you where it gets fucking dark. Another thing that social media companies have discovered is what really modifies behaviour. It's it's not just receiving it. Like if you put up a nice photograph on Instagram and you're happy with how you look and all your friends like it and you walk away from that feeling more attractive or whatever, not great for your self-esteem. You know, it's still that external locus of evaluation shit that I talk about not the best but the dopamine hit from it from a little like what 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 the social media companies wanted from about 2014 onwards they realized that people respond better to more extreme emotions okay so let's just say you're the rat in the cage and instead of getting a food pellet you give the rat his favourite food, like a big juicy cricket. You know, a live cricket, and he's thrilled with that because it's not just a shitty food pellet, it's like yum yum, a real life cricket, and it's moving around and I get to kill it. So the rat gets a big dopamine hit. Um, alternatively, the punishment is very severe electrocution. So social media began to realise the best way to keep people online is to try and appeal to the most extremes of rage, offence, you know, people being offended, people getting incredibly angry, people fighting. I mean, if you were to measure on a scale of 1 to 10, the kind of extremity of emotion that you feel while using social media, I fucking guarantee you, it's close to a 10 when you're in an argument with a stranger in a comment section. Okay? Not talking DMs, but if you're... If someone says something in the comments of an article or on Twitter 
And what they've said is, is if they're either insulting you, if they are, if their opinion is odious and you strongly disagree with it, you then respond to their argument angrily. They respond back. I guarantee you how you experience that emotionally when you get into it. Now, the skill I've tried to learn over the year, because I've got fucking quarter of a million Twitter followers, so Jesus Christ, if I was arguing with everyone who calls me a prick on Twitter, I wouldn't have a hope. So I've, I've, I've had to operant condition myself to be able to walk away from it by learning that I have a better day if I don't fucking argue with strangers online. So I've had to operant condition myself into that. But when you have a public argument with a stranger online, it can, it can make your blood boil. And you can find yourself shaking. And you can find yourself consistently refreshing the page, waiting for this person to respond. And you can take their words very personally. And you can get very sucked in to this... When you step back from it, it's fucking ridiculous. But you get sucked in to this deeply personal argument because... first, Firstly, empathy is removed. In a, an online interaction with that, all you have is the other person's avatar. It's words on a page, so it seems much more personal. You can't read that person's body language. There's no room for compassion, empathy. You will say things in that space that you would not say in real life because it might be too hurtful in real life. Both of you will probably be a bit, little bit more chilled out. There's no threat of physical violence. So the online space, it is a... It's a perfect kind of ground for extreme emotions and extreme reactions. Also, you know that other people are watching, so you have this sense of, I must beat this person in an argument because others are watching, okay? So the tech companies are aware of this. So where it gets fucking dark is... extreme... Extreme beliefs. Like, you, all you got to do is look, look at the fucking... Have you ever used... YouTube is a, is, a, is a prime example, lads, okay? So, I'll use YouTube a lot. I fucking love YouTube. Now, when I use YouTube, what, what am I looking up? Mainly, I'm looking up videos. I love videos about old synthesizers. I like to watch people eating... Eating World War Two rations, cans of beef that might be 60 years old and open them up. I like to watch that. I like to watch travel documentaries. I like to watch a lot of cooking, food, things like that. These are my interests on YouTube. And I generally don't really go onto YouTube for political stuff. But the past two years, even if I spend the entire day watching only videos about synthesizers... In the suggestions on the side, the videos have nothing to do with synthesizers. Instead, what they're suggesting to me is uh, 10 feminist fails. Or they're suggesting a video that'd be like um, SJW's Freak Out or Jordan Peterson videos. Jordan Peterson calmly dismantles feminists. And I'm looking at these I'm looking at these things being suggested, going, why the fuck am I being suggested videos where people who subscribe to feminism will say are being portrayed as irrational lunatics? 
why, 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 why does YouTube want me consistently to see these videos when I've just spent the day watching someone clean a synthesizer from 1972? What's going on? And the simple reason is, is that YouTube knows that I'm a male between a certain age and they want me to see this type of content because it will radicalise me. Alright? And I see it happening with so many fucking friends. Not just YouTube, but also on Facebook. I'm being targeted because of my gender and because of my age. They want me to see videos that will make me watch them. And then I'll say to myself, Fucking hell, these, these liberals are after getting out of control. Jesus, this feminism shit is bad. Wow, look at these feminists. They've all got blue hair and they're screaming and roaring and now they're taking over everything. You know, and it's this real slippery fucking slope where after six months, I'm now starting to agree with this stuff. Then I start posting about it. I start posting, all these triggered feminists need to shut the fuck up. And I slowly become radicalised. That's really deliberate shit. That's really deliberate and it's really fucking insidious. And it's something that's been proven time and time again with these tech companies. And what happens? What happens when when the tech company decides to push uh, anti-feminist, anti-immigration, kind of right to far right content uh, on the algorithm? If it it prioritises this, what happens? Why are people making YouTube videos? Because you can monetize YouTube videos and you can make money. So, if uh, someone who isn't political, video gamers, conspiracy theorists, if they see that the content that's shitting on feminism, that's shitting on immigration, that's being far right, is getting the most views, then they're just gonna they're gonna see, ah, oh, this is what's being rewarded. Operant conditioning. I better start making these videos so more and more of this content gets created. Now, there's a big pushback against this. This isn't me just discovering it right now. After Trump, people said, hold on a second, what's going on here? So there's been a huge pushback to demonetize this type of content. It's, it's, it's being pulled back. But if you've got a friend and usually a man of a certain age and all of a sudden you're noticing that their viewpoints are getting a little bit right wing and making you go, fuck, where did that come from? What's that post about? Jesus, I didn't know they were racist. It's because of this. So this is the crack. This is what's happening. On YouTube, on Facebook, on Twitter. That they are consciously putting into people's feeds content that is ideologically and politically extreme because people who have strong, radicalised opinions about feminism, about fucking immigration... These people start to identify with these beliefs. They start to find communities with these beliefs. These communities who uphold and like their statuses when they say, uh, look at all these triggered feminists and then you get a lot of likes. And it creates an extreme division and a non-stop online argument. Because then the other side of that is you get people who reject this kind of more right-wing conservative view and you get people that are going left. And you get people in the middle and then you get people who are straight up, I'm a fucking communist and everything online about me is communism and it's 
polarized opinions on either direction and a non-stop continual struggle and fight that exists online but who benefits facebook google instagram youtube why because if you've now identified with an ideology and a belief and you're consistently going into social media with high emotions all day the extremity of these emotions you're being operant conditioned into spending more and more and more time on these apps non-stop arguing and what what are the tech companies getting all your data imagine you didn't have these strong opinions imagine you just wanted to use facebook like remember twitter in 2010 you'd go onto twitter just to make a funny fucking joke hope i got a few likes leave it and come back a day later there was no politics on twitter in 2010 there was no politics on facebook in 2010 Uh, Lads, I went to fucking art college in the 2000s. Politically minded people with strong opinions in fucking art college in the 2000s. It was kind of low. Most people didn't really have strong... I'm I'm not saying it's good or bad, but people didn't really give a fuck. People cared about music. But now you go to a, a college campus and everyone has strong opinions left or right. And we've all been operant conditioned into this because of data. Because of data fucking companies that want data who have figured out extreme opinions, extreme emotions lead to more time online, which leads to more delicious data, which leads to more money. And there's a good and a bad side. Isn't it good that, especially when it comes to the left, people are getting more politically engaged? But how useful is that? How useful is it to exist as a very highly emotive extreme avatar online, non-stop arguing? And if you want to know, like, you hear a lot about bots, like Russia will say, Russia, North Korea, China, they have entire, like, intelligence agencies that are in, like, call centers online with, like, 50 fucking 50, 60 Twitter accounts, Facebook accounts that are fake. And these are bot accounts. They're run by people, but it could be one person uh, running 60 accounts. How do they work? You see it with... There's a big problem on Twitter at the moment with the Irish far right that are emerging slowly and emerging quite aggressively on online spaces. And how bots work is... If someone in this space decides to express a right-wing view... Bots will search out that tweet and they'll have their fake account that looks like an Irish right-wing account but it's fake and you can't tell the difference and they will like the tweets of the real person who is uh, saying this far-right opinion and then that person goes to Twitter and sees that they've gotten 16 likes for their horrible far-right opinion about direct provision or about immigrants and they are now reinforced to post more. And why are the bots doing it? The bots are doing it because they're taking advantage of an infrastructure which was set up by the tech companies, right? The bots are doing it because they're from outside interests that want to see the the, the political destabilization of Western democracies. Now, this could either be China, Russia, places like that, or it could just be 
very wealthy people who like recessions. You know? Brexit happened because of this shit, lads. Trump got elected because of this shit. If you want to know, now, what, what does the world look like when we are all operant conditioned? You know, data is the, is the new oil. It's the most, the most, the hottest commodity in the world. What does the world look like when in order for huge companies to obtain as much data as possible and become multi-billionaires and the most richest people on the planet, what does that do to the world? What it does is it gives us Trump and it gives us Brexit. And I remember the 90s. I remember the 2000s. It wasn't like this. It wasn't this mad. Right now, something insane is happening. Like, you look at Trump as the president of America and you go, what the fuck is this? He's a mad bastard. What the, how the fuck did this happen? How? And you're putting your hair out and you're looking at Brexit and you're going, what the fuck are they doing? Boris Johnson, what the fuck? He's a clown. How is he in power? How? And you have to pull your hair out and go, how did this happen? Data. Operant conditioning for us to have extreme online behaviour to generate more data for large companies the end result is people like Trump and Boris Johnson and Brexit and the emergence of the far right and a continual extreme argument that you can't really escape because we're addicted to the phones and that's the current kind of condition of the world and then you say to yourself but I thought like Google and Facebook and Twitter. They seem really woke. They seem like really progressive companies who care about gender equality and they they care about racism and they care about social justice. Sure, isn't this the, the ethos of their companies? And yeah, yeah, on the fucking surface, lads, to pull the wool over our eyes. But ultimately, you have to ask the question, well, well if... If Twitter gives so much of a fuck about the far right, why are there so many of them on Twitter? Why is it so hard for... Look under the comments of a journal.ie article on Facebook, lads. Horrible, violent, racist comments about people living in direct provision, about people coming to Ireland for a better life. Extreme racism and you're wondering, how are, is this not enough to have your account deleted? Why are these? Why, why does this still exist? If I post a photograph of my dick on Instagram, I'm gone in a half an hour. But yet, if I cleverly say a bunch of racist shit, I'm allowed on. That's fine. I haven't violated any policies. And it's... Why is that? I tell you why. The tech companies, they don't give a fuck. They pretend they give a fuck. It earns tons and tons of money for them if there's racists online because if there's racism if there's extreme opinions online then there's people to fight with those people and then you, it's it's a giant video game a binary right and wrong black and white far uh, left and right non-stop video game where we're all engaging with it for the dopamine hits of score and a point for our team and that's what it is and I participate in it 
You know what I mean? I can, I I I do protect. I try I try not to. I have a rule. I I don't think I actually. When it comes to people with extreme far right opinions, I I don't engage. I block outright because I I my I have too many followers. I don't like even to react in any way as the platform, as far as I'm concerned. So, what I prefer to do is elevate, elevate voices of fucking charities and shit that are trying to help marginalized people. That's what I prefer to do rather than get down and dirty with some racist fucking bot account. But that's what you get. That's the world that you get. And this is the type of shit that keeps me awake at night. Because I, I, I go, it wasn't like this in 2006. It wasn't like this in 1996. I remember there being bad things in the world, but I don't remember there being this extremity of feeling and emotion. And I don't remember this extremity of ideology and opinion. This is something I haven't seen before. And there's other factors do you know, the world, you know, the rise of the fucking 1%, there's almost a global housing crisis, you have the threat of climate change, so all these things are helping it along. But there is a power of extreme irrationality that makes you want to pull your fucking hair out right now, and I firmly believe it is because of giant tech companies, the richest companies in the world, who are making money, they make their money by having us online as much as humanly possible, and like, we're rats in cages, we are rats in the Skinner box, who have been operant conditioned, to stay online as long as humanly possible, through the extremity of emotion. And as a final point, and I've said this before, this is why I believe, podcasts are so popular. Like, why why are podcasts massive, but we don't give a fuck about radio? You've just spent 70 fucking minutes listening to me essentially just give you my opinions as a monologue, but I guarantee you, you feel calm. Even though what I'm talking about is not calm, I bet you you feel a little bit calm and nourished and relaxed because podcasts are the only space we have with our smartphones where we can escape that for a little bit. It's the podcast hug, as I call it. It's a slight meditative escape where you're not... Like, yes, you're... you're, you're by listening to this fucking podcast, you've just given your data away to whoever. But you've had an hour there where you probably weren't looking through Twitter, you probably weren't going on Instagram, you've had a little escape, and it recharges the batteries, and that's why podcasts are fucking huge. It's as simple as that. And radio isn't, because radio is stuck in the Stone Age, trying to bombard you all the time with fucking loud noises. And it's like, lads, I'm trying to escape the fucking loud noises. I've enough of this in the smartphone. So I want to listen. I had a fucking three-hour podcast last week. Me and Brian, or, or two weeks ago, me and Brian Cross in Los Angeles on a balcony talking about hip-hop and drinking cans. And I had people mailing me going, that's that's the best podcast I've ever heard. That three hours of two people conversing and not pucking the heads off each other and not calling each other cucks or fucking feminazis. That people are getting solace and relaxation from this. It's because it's an escape. It's the only... 
little calm escape that we have from the deliberately operant conditioned theatre of extreme emotions that is the social media space. So that there is is the the central thesis of just one episode of the BBC series, which I hope the fuck is actually out this week. It was the central thesis that kind of shapes the episode. Um, but there's a lot of other cool stuff in it. So thank you very much for listening to the rant this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope I didn't fucking miss anything because it's it, like I said, it's this is one of those podcasts now where I'll, I'll, I'll finish recording and then go fuck. What about that other thing? Um. All right. God bless. I'll talk to you next week. I I enjoyed that. I enjoyed talking about that. I hope you did too. And I know I'm going to end up getting fucking comments over this where someone's going to go, I listened to your whole podcast and all you did the whole time was complain about Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Yet I noticed that you have a Facebook and an Instagram and Twitter account. Why don't you just delete them rather than complaining? Well, fuck you, Noel. Um, Because I'm trapped in the system, the same system you're trapped in. I rely upon these apps for me to fucking earn a living, to have a job. And I'm entitled to recognise and call out and ponder what's wrong about them, even though I'm going to go straight onto these apps and use it to tell you about this fucking podcast. So call it hypocrisy if you like, if that makes you sleep better at night, but to an extent it's an element of hypocrisy. To the other extent, I'm, I'm trapped in a fucking system. We're all trapped in this system. But you can still engage with the system while wanting to improve it. Alright? God bless you, Noel. I love you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 